there's a pressure on me, I feel, to be consistent. And that there's a, a level of consistency that I'm happy with and there's a level that, that just really ups. If I dip below that, you know, make too many mistakes, then I need to look at what's, you know, I need to look at that and go, okay, what what was different? What was going on? And very often the stuff going on at home or there the wasn't enough sleep or the food has been terrible. You know, all, the, all of these factors kick in. But um, for me, the the best feeling is when you come off stage you haven't made any mistakes and you and I've done the job that I've gone out there to do which is perform at my peak and um, be that that solid foundation for the rest of the band to sit on Well, hello there. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. It's great to have you along. This podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have succeeded at a real level, people who have supported and nudged and nurtured others to success or at least have tried. And we hope that you can find something in these conversations and, and insights that can help you reflect and, and think a little bit about how you're working, how you're connecting with others, how you're living your life so that they can perhaps support and champion you to understand, relate and progress in your work and how we live. Now, I'm delighted to share with you the news that we're partnering with a multi-award winning health food and drinks company, Junius. So Junius have made a superb range of plant-based juices. They're all cold-pressed, so the nutrients aren't blitzed in the process of making them. And what I really like about Junius is Maria, the founder, has put some genuine thought into the unique formulations, some with more of a focus on protein, some with more of a focus on energy, and others blended with a caffeine shop when you might need a healthier way for a pick-me-up. I also love the fact that they've got some really groovy names such as Fab, Zip and Rev. So I would wholly recommend giving these award-winning juices a go. And we've teamed up with Junior so that you can benefit from a 10% discount on your first order. They have a range of themed boxes with seven juices plus seven juice shots that you can choose based on your health goal. Or you can choose a mixed selection box to give them all a go. In the show notes of this episode, you'll find an exclusive code CHAMPIONS10. And when you go to the checkout at wearejunius.com forward slash shop, make sure you enter your code. So we are delighted to partner with Junius. Give their juices a go. They are absolutely genuine quality nutrition. Now to this week's episode. And, and well, this is a cracker. Uh, this week, we have two guests, Mark Richardson and Marcus Smith. Mark Richardson is the drummer for the band Skunk Nancy. He doesn't need much more introduction than that. Suffice to say that Skunk and Nancy were figureheads of the British rock explosion in the mid-90s with defining songs such as Weak and Hedonism. And they remain a highly influential band 25 years since they were formed. Now, my other guest, Dr. Marcus Smith, is a reader in sport and exercise physiology at the University of Chichester with a background of supporting elite athletes, especially boxers, to Olympic success. Now, I've known Marcus for as long as Skunk and Nancy have been around, connecting and collaborating with him around performance sport. But Marcus loves his music, too. And as you'll hear, he became curious about how hard drummers work whilst on stage. 
And this led to him contacting Clem Burke, the drummer of Blondie. And from there, a fascinating project was struck up involving the quantification of the physiological demands of drumming performance. And, well, I'll let Marcus explain all in just how high the workload is. Their work began to gain momentum and the Clembert Drumming Project was founded and Mark Richardson got involved in the project because in music circles, he was known as one of the most ferocious drummers about. Let's take a brief listen to Mark Richardson performing. Phenomenal, hey? That's from Tear the Place Up, and that was courtesy of Skunk and Nancy. The full drumming track plays out at the end of the episode. You must listen to it. It is astonishing. In this conversation, Mark describes his early career, how he found drumming actually was a a physical and mental outlet for him, how exploring his own performance with Marcus has opened up his thinking and practice to a, a much healthier, sustainable way of approaching the demands of performing on stage or touring. They also both share some wonderful spin-off ideas that the project has led to and in supporting children with conditions such as autism. All the links are in the show notes for you to find out more about that. I'm so thankful to Marcus for spotting this as an opportunity to explore I'm almost ashamed to say that I've totally taken drumming for granted over the years, and I certainly won't now after this conversation. I'm so genuinely grateful for the chance to connect with people like Mark and Marcus, hear their insights, and to be able to share them with you. The transfer of lessons from this project into a whole host of sporting, working, and performance arenas is so stark. And that's why we continue to to look within and outside of sports performance, because the very fact that there is an applicable transfer just increases the power of the lessons. Now, just before we start the recording, there's normally some fiddling about with settings and so on. And then I ask the guests if they're ready to go. After I ask Mark, no guesses what he then says. Fantastic. Are you are you happy to get going? Are you you all good? Yeah, absolutely. Let's rock. Yep, Let's we're good. Rock. Let's, well, that's the first, well. That's that's a nice intro, actually. But I, that's not, that's the first time I've heard "Let's Rock" on the <laughs> Supporting Champions podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, welcome to the podcast, both of you. Um, let's just check in with you both, just to see how you are. How are things with you, Mark? Um, so at the moment, um, you know, we're heading possibly into another lockdown. The Skunk and Nancy tour's been put back till to next may from this october uh gosh um in terms of career it's really really tricky and really scary uh but in terms of myself um i've just uh, completed my master's in music industry innovation and um really happy to have passed that and uh uh yeah, surprised myself actually. So I'm feeling buoyed and um, good, and entering a new chapter in in my life. Um, I guess academically, and you know, looking at other possibilities, and you know, the whole world seems to have sort of opened up in that respect, really, uh, in ways that I never would have thought possible before. So it's sort of um, 
bittersweet, really. Uh, you know, the music industry is is on its backside, to put it politely, and um, as as are a lot of the arts and most of the arts, rather. Uh, but I've got this new sort of this new lease of life, you know, uh, as well. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> wow. Okay. So so you say in terms of scary for your career, in in terms of the prospects of live events and or getting together with the with the band and recording and so on. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I mean, the the live show aspect is just completely out of the question at the moment and um you know we're not we can't get together and songwrite either because uh we we don't work well over the internet so we we all need to be in the same room that's how we've written that's how we've always written and that's how we want to continue to write because that's how we get the best results um so you know being kind of temperate is kind of separate is um providing a a, a, a barrier to us kind of getting on creatively in any way whatsoever we we are working on the social network side of things and you know doing lots of content for you know tiktok and instagram and all these these things that uh i thought was the uh, domain of the youth <laughs> but um uh but apart from that we're not doing anything which is which is kind of that is scary because that's all I've done for 30 years, you know? Hmm. Wow. Okay. So maybe I can pick up on that in a moment yeah. about uh, your interest about developing academically and what that might uh, lead to. So how are things with you, Marcus? Yeah, it's uh, interesting times. I think um, there's a couple of ways or many ways in which you can look at the current situation. I'm somebody who always tries to find opportunities and so therefore, it really has, I think, made everybody reflect upon the direction that they're on, the way that they do things, and whether that's the most effective way. Um, I've really enjoyed, as Mark mentioned him doing his MA, I've done some mentoring with Mark, um, which has been absolutely awesome, challenging me to consider different areas about performance, um, which I'm sure we can go on to a little bit later on. So for me, the parallels between the elite sports person, the elite musician, the elite dancer, whoever that person may be. I've just found the whole COVID experience really, really interesting in terms of me questioning my understanding of what do we understand by performance. Um, and that's intriguing for me. Yeah, I mean, that that is, I think, such a fascinating but untapped area. Um Last year, we spoke to Emma Hatton, West End star. So she was in Elphaba. She was, she was Elphaba in Wicked. Mm. Um, she just talked about how intense it is physically, mentally, and how draining it is. And recently spoken to Stuart Warden, the principal at the Brit School, and just preparing the next generation for that, that performance as much as the demand per, you know, mentally, personally for what might be fame, uh, the ups and downs of an industry. All right, so Marcus, so you you said opportunity there. So um, clearly you've got an eye for an opportunity. So tell us, just just give me a bit of a background as to how did this all get going? So right back to the very beginning, I, as a 12-year-old boy, um, used to go into music shops with my friends and I came across a 12-inch single, In the Flesh by Blondie. And on the image, if anybody goes and has a look at it, it's this striking image of Debbie Harry. 
So as an almost teenage, adolescent kid, I was immediately attracted to the visual. Started to play the song and got into Blondie before they became famous. They then later went on to become this iconic band and noted for clearly Debbie Harry's uh, visuals. But then Clem Burke, the drummer, uh, was just an awesome performer. Um, and I went to see Blondie in 1980 for the first time and watched Clem play and was just blown away by the whole experience. Fast forward to 1998, um, I completed my PhD, uh, which was based on my work with Olympic boxers, developed a model of sports science, exercise physiology, monitoring performance, and just wrote a letter to Clem, said, was you interested because Blondie reformed in 1998? Um, and he got back to me and says, yeah, I'm really interested. So we met in Wembley Arena in 1999 and we did the first heart rate data collection during Blondie's um, No Exit World Tour. Um, that got published in 2000 and the, the project then has just got bigger and bigger and bigger um, to the point whereby we launched the Klenberg Drumming Project um, in 2008. And that invited a number of different practitioners to get in contact with us. Music therapists, for example, that were saying, oh, we use drumming as a therapy, but we're not quite sure why it works, but it does. And so that intrigued us, really. And um, chatting with Clem, Clem was always saying that the project is more than just about him. Um, and so we then reached out to other drummers and Tina Clark, who's an artist relations person at Zildjian Symbols. Um, she played a key part at the beginning in terms of providing equipment for me to do the testing with Clem, but she also supported or knew of Mark. And I said to uh, Tina, you know, who, what, who's this Mark Richardson? <laughs> she says, well, he's known, he's known as breaking the most symbols in a calendar year that we've ever had. Oh, so that's a badge of honour right there. <laughs> he was labelled as the baddest, hardest hitting rock drummer that there was at the time so he clearly is an attraction to me steve as you can well imagine <laughs> so um, what, what so, started this off then marcus so because you um i'm just wondering what the leap of connection here is that uh, between your physiology understanding of boxing and pugilism yeah do you just think i'm going to put a heart rate on whilst heart rate belt on whilst i'm in a mosh pit and uh, or, or what was the connection did you think there must be some sort of interest of demand here it's so interesting in terms of your own starting point. So, for example, boxing, I worked with the Olympic boxing team, the GB group for about 18 years. I'd never boxed. I can't drum. But things intrigue me. And I just sit as a scientist and I think that first step is observation. What are you passionate about learning? And I was just absolutely blown away to sit alongside these guys, these, these drummers, when they're performing six feet away and you look out and there's 20, 100,000 people watching them play, it's such a privileged position to be in. But I want to capture that. I want to understand that environment even more. I want to be able to have conversations that I bring no baggage to the table. So it's not like I'm a failed drummer and then I'm trying to understand why is it that I'm not a professional so for me, it was clearly individuals demonstrating incredible physical capability and trying to understand what limits that capability. So as physiologists, I think we're always interested in fatigue. Fatigue in the moment 
and fatigue over time. So when I first began to chat to Clem and to Mark, you know, they're touring 100, 200 gigs a year around the globe. You wouldn't get a professional athlete doing that. They bulk about playing twice a week. I mean, some of the other artists who perhaps are on the stage, they must look at the interpretation of fatigue by other sports people and think, you want to come and have a go at what I do. So for me, millions had been spent into understanding more about the performance of elite sports people, but nothing really to do with music. Yet these individuals are the ones who, as a group, yeah, it's fascinating. Stuff that we're doing with Mark is just really, really interesting. All right, so let's get into that in a minute. But so then, Mark, the most number of symbols broken in a in a year. Did you have a kind of an acute awareness of of your? Were you aiming to break them for for a start, or um, do you have acute awareness of oh God, this is tiring stuff, or? Uh, this is this is quite a deep dive in terms of how you perform. Have you always been quite um, interested and meticulous about your mind and body? Mm. I, I mean, I, I was really good at sport, and I was I was uh, in the rugby team, and and I, I did a lot of played a lot of rugby, and I was very physical. I'd always played drums growing up, and um, I guess the only thing I maybe noticed that if I didn't play drums, I was acting up in some some way. So there was this this not not a connection in in me, but looking at a, in in reflection, there was this connection between not having a physical um, output and me being troublesome, maybe let's say you know, or just being that that kid that needs attention all the time and. Um, if I played my drums or if I was out playing rugby or if I'd done some physical, hard physical exertion in, in, in any given day, that didn't happen. So that was probably the first kind of thing that I would know that I would, you know, joining the dots on reflection that, that I would say. Um, moving forward, I think, um, I, I absolutely needed to vent my aggression i had a lot of i was i had a lot of pent up aggression a lot of anger about things that i wouldn't even understand until i got sober in god when was that 2001 and started working on myself personally but it was all about i wanted the world to look at me and see what i was doing and notice me and the only way i could do that was hitting the drums harder than everyone else and making everybody say, my God, doesn't he hit the, the drums hard? You know, it's like, what have you got against the drums? Like, what have they done to you? You know, and all of this. And in the process of that, I broke a lot of symbols. You know, that's, that really is simply it. I think it was a lot more complicated than just hitting the drums hard. There was something driving that. And it was something, it was about attention. It was about feeling less than. It was about, you know, lots and lots of very personal stuff, like I say, that I wouldn't kind of realise until I, I had, I'd had a lot of therapy. And then it all started to make sense. And then once it all started to make sense, I started to play drums rather than smash <laughs> drums. Um, so um, I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it sort of, um, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't going out to, to break them all. Um, it was just, uh, they would, they were just casualties of, um, my, the way I played and the way I played was a result of the, the way I was as a person. And, 
and how my psyche was at the time, I, I suppose. So do you mind if I ask you about that? You mentioned the word sober. Yeah. It kind of allude, alludes to a, a before and after yeah. or a period of time where perhaps physically, mentally, you weren't looking after yourself as much, oh, but, no. but now you feel like you've, you're in a position that you're, you're managing self a bit better. Definitely. I mean, I, I, uh, I realized when I was 14, I did my first show and all the, the kids that would push me around in the corridors at school were all looking at me on, and, and more importantly, all their girlfriends were looking at me going, wow, isn't he amazing? And I was like, <laughs> right, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. That was the turning point for me. And um, I, it, it was all about, you know, if, if I do, if I play drums, then I get this attention. And um, that sort of led to, you know, it's always a, only ever going to be a temporary fix. So when that stopped working um, and I got older, then drinking became um, something that, again, temporarily sort of bridged that gap between feeling insecure and less than and feeling okay but obviously that's a downward spiral and that got worse and worse um to the point where it needed an intervention um around about 2000 around about when the band split up um in 2001 uh 2000 2001 and um and i spent about the next three years in trying to get sober not succeeding, you know, going backwards and forwards between the two and trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, and then finally succeeding in 2003, and I haven't had a drink or drug since. And um, that journey's been incredible because it's been full of... Um, it's been full of self-discovery. It's been full of therapy. It's been full of... Uh, well, the first few years were full of AA meetings and all that's how I started in sobriety. And when that fell off, um, the the kind of onus was then on me because for me, and I don't know if I'm off topic here, but please redirect me if I am, but for me, AA works for a certain period of time. If If you don't look underneath at what's driving the alcoholism or what's driving that addiction then you're always going to be a dry drunk. That's my personal view. So for me, there was this thing, yeah, but why was I doing that in the first place? So um, for me going to uh, sitting with a therapist and talking about, you know, it's the old cliche to, you know, tell me about your father, tell me about your childhood and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of how I discovered uh, who I really was and what was driving the addiction, what was driving the alcoholism. And um, and it all really sprang from there. I started to look after myself better from that point. Like all my teeth were practically falling out when I first got sober, for example, um, because I'd never, it sounds, it sounds really, really silly now, but at the time I'd never thought about uh, flossing or looking after my teeth or, you know, I just brushed them in the morning and that was it. You know, <laughs> that's um, physically I was, I was, you know, my, my belly was distended. My, I guess my liver was, was getting really fatty because I was drinking so much and I was getting bloated. And um, once I stopped, obviously that, uh, well, actually, first of all, it, my addiction moved to sugar. And so I didn't really lose a lot of weight initially. Um uh, but after a while, I started 
to get into the rhythm of exercising, eating better and, you know, and then, um, and that was through the period of when I was in feeder. And then when Skunk rejoined, I was like absolutely bang on, back on. Uh, I mean, I was, that's probably the fittest I've ever been. Even when I was playing rugby, I, I had such a rigid regime the the year before Skunk got back together. Um, Cause we had a meeting about, a year before we went back on tour. So I was like, right, this is it. I'm going to get fit. I got my food sorted. I got my exercise sorted. And, um, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> and what led to that moment of thinking, you know what, I've got to, I've got to take care of myself. Did you start to s- tap into people like Marcus and other people in, t- in terms of experts that around mind and body wellness or was it something you just thought, I'm just going to have to do this out of my own back, my own resourcefulness? Mark, Marcus, I met about three years or two years after, um, let's see, 2011, wasn't it, Marcus? Um, yeah. So that was about two years after we agreed to get the band back together. And I was I was obviously in, in sobriety. You spend an awful lot of uh, when you're in sorry in an active addiction. You spend an awful lot of time in the pub talking rubbish and chatting about things, um, wasting a lot of time that way. In sobriety, you have a lot more spare time. So, I was looking for opportunities. Um, I was looking for other things that interested me. And when I got um, the email from Tina introducing us, I was I was like a bit like Clem maybe was when when Marcus first contacted him, just thinking that sounds really interesting. Let's take a look at that. And the, the first email that Marcus sent me was all about, um, uh, and, I'm, and I'm just reading from the, the original email here, you know, uh, he wanted to um, investigate changes in, changes in body mass, pre and post concert, changes in core temperature, changes in heart rate. And that was just really fascinating to me because one of the things he said to me on the phone was like, you know, we 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 have discovered that there's a lot of similarities in. Um, and Marcus will probably clarify this, but there's a lot of similarities in uh, Premiership football and drummers' cardiovascular systems in terms of how efficient they are. Not that I could run around for an hour and a half like they do, but the way our hearts work and the, and the efficiency of our of the pump, as it were, were quite similar. And that that sort of those kinds of of scientific um, facts really fascinated me, and and I wanted to know more, and so I I, I happily kind of um, you know signed up for a to be his guinea pig. <laughs> well, let's pick that up with you then, Marcus. Then, so um, what what are the what are the demands? What have you found? What what can you sort of or, or actually tell us a little bit? No, tell us that first, and then also just tell me how you go about doing this. So, as I said, I think we set a, up a model of trying to understand an elite sports person's capability, and that was clearly the work with the Olympic boxers. Um, but then when you start to look at what the drummer and the comparison, say, to a Premier League footballer. So when we launched the project, the Clembert Drumming Project in 2008, this, it became a global story because what the press did, they ran with the idea that because... When Mark's playing or Clem's playing, the gigs might last for about 90 minutes. That was the same duration as a Premier League football player. So when and then I began to share um, the fact that heart rates can 
their peak value can be ascertained at infrequent times during that that period. Sweat rates are up to a litre and a half, two litres per hour. The similarities all of a sudden became something that the press could run with. So it became a global story that we actually tracked the story break in. So I was still doing interviews 24 hours later about comparing Clem to a Premier League footballer back in the day. So the similarities are the fact that these individuals, if you go and watch a band play live, so if you, even if you watch Mark uh, on the internet and watch him play, often you're drawn to the lead singer, but the, the heartbeat, the drive behind the band comes from the drummer. And so for me, it was about, again, trying to understand the complexity. And, and one of the things hopefully we were able to touch on maybe a little bit later on is how the brain is able to coordinate this complex, incredible performance. Um, and so it, it, for me, sort of Mark naturally giving of his time because he's interested in wanting to find out more. It's about people, I think, with open minds, not being biased in terms of what's gone before, being informed by what's gone before, but clearly setting up me sitting with Mark and saying, well, where'd you get fatigue? What is it that causes you concerns? And I think back where in that original email, Mark, you were talking about performing in 37 degrees heat. And so the thermal challenge of if the 100 Club, for example, is an iconic uh, indoor venue in London. And for me, it's like a sweat box. It's like a thermal climatic chamber. It's awesome to study performers in that environment. But you have to appreciate that these performers the likes of Mark are doing it indoors and outdoors. They're doing it at different times of the day. And so the complexity for the musician, the complexity for the drummer, took my thinking into a whole different way in which how do we understand how best to support these individuals, especially when they're on tour, you know, doing 100, 200 plus gigs around the globe. How do you build a support structure around that? And ultimately... You have to empower the musician, the likes of Mark, to make the right decisions at the right times because you're not going to be with them. And so it's the empowerment of knowledge, I think, or making the right decisions at the right times. That's where I get the pleasure because ultimately the science is about allowing cre creativity to happen and for them to enjoy the moment even more. And that's critical for my thinking. It's about the performer being allowed to be in that creative bubble for longer to do things that everybody goes, wow. Uh, that's amazing. And uh, the way you've just described that is, um, is so compelling. And I'm no rocker, but I remember going to see, I remember when your project launched and I heard about it and, and I, we hadn't spoken about that over the years. And I'm then thinking and remembering going to see Lenny Kravitz, Wembley, 93, I think it was, something like that. And I had to look up the name of the drummer for the podcast here. So Cindy Blackman. Cindy, yeah. So I was looking over at Lenny, watching Lenny, and then just then going eyes right, watching Cindy, who was just phenomenal. Because you can see the athleticism, you can see the intensity, and it doesn't let up. No. And, and so what you're describing here is 
is a is not only that artistic but that physicality. So can you just get, add a few facts then? You you mentioned hitting max heart yeah. rate. Um yeah, so if I give you if I give you an example, so Jamie Oliver um, is a drummer out of UK Subs, a punk band, and Jamie was sort of followed it, um, stepped in to to join the original band members, and um, so we put a thermal. He swallowed a, a, a thermal pill, so we could measure core temperature, and we measured his body mass pre and post, and we had a heart rate monitor on him. So. Inside the inside the venue is about 30, 4 degrees, something like that. Really hot, probably 90 to 100% humidity, no window, so you're in a basement. And his average heart rate, because the punk songs are like two and a half, three-minute wonders. They're, you get into them, you finish them. There's no guitar solos and stuff to slow it down. It's get in, get on, and get off. And so for him, the average heart rate for 60 minutes was 195 beats per minute. That was his average heart rate. His peak went up to 212 beats per minute in that gig, and we presented that at a conference. And it, you can imagine the... You've been to these conferences, Steve, whereby you get a lot of egos that are in the room. And so when I'm my title involves drumming, you can see them all thinking, well, what's this got to do with physicality? You start to put the numbers up, you know, you're losing 2% of your body mass. Your core temperature within 40 minutes is going up a degree and a half. Wow. That is so, so interesting as a physiologist. And so Mark's done similar stuff. Brixton Academy, we've done loads of stuff with Mark. We put Mark into um, climatic chambers where he's, I've asked him to download the set list. And so Mark, uh, replicates each of the songs but under these thermal conditions and uh, I've got some classic photos of Mark starting with a big smile on his face and at the end he's collapsed over the snare drum <laughs> absolutely melted but again Mark perhaps you can talk a little bit maybe about your experience of, of performing well in the yeah Hades. I mean most recently for example in Bern in Switzerland um, it's a, an amazing place you can I think it's Bern you can jump in the river and like just let the current take you down and you get out further down and all this kind of stuff. We were having a lovely time and um, and it didn't seem to be a particularly hot day, but the club didn't have um, gone air, air conditioning. Thank you. Didn't have air conditioning. So, um, but it was fine in sound check. Uh, uh, anyway, we get, I just made sure that I had my usual drinks um with you know I, I've salts and all that kind of stuff in them just because I know that it's no good just drinking water you've got to have some you know some kind of salt replacement as well some mineral replacement so I have that as a matter of course but I also had uh, up to that point I was drinking freezing cold water to because I thought you know that's what I needed to do to cool myself down um, that would have been fine if I'd been pouring it over my head or down my neck or something but because I was drinking it, um, uh, what I discovered afterwards that uh, my body was doing everything it could to bring this water back up to a temperature that was comfortable for it. And as a consequence, at the end, towards the end of the set, I think I was literally three bars away from the end of the set. I, co I collapsed on, on the kit. Um, it, was, it was about 41 degrees in the venue at that point. Um, so it was really, really warm. I thought I was doing the right thing, drinking this freezing cold water and, and um, 
it's it's what did me in actually so now i only drink room temperature water and i'm absolutely fine you know um but that's that's one experience you know i mean there's lots of so many factors that um that affect the the way that i play the efficiency that i play i mean you don't sleep well really on tour you sleep for example you know you're sleeping on a tour bus a lot of the time other times you're in you know hotels um if you're headlining you get into bed late you might have three flights the next day to get to the next festival so you're up at you're in bed at half one you're up at half four to get to the airport and get on your plane for half six um you know sleep deprivation is a really big factor of of being on tour food um is another huge factor um a lot of the time i mean we're fortunate to be of a size now where uh, sometimes we can take our own catering and that means we can get the sustenance that we need. But a lot of the time you're at the, you know, at the, um, behest of, of festival catering, um, and or, or local catering if you're in a venue. And, and sometimes that's, it's not, well, more often than not, it's not the healthiest, you know, so you're, you're in this sort of dilemma where you need to eat. But you don't want to, you, you know, you need the right food to fuel your body, but you're not getting it. You know, you're just getting, you know, pizza again or pasta again or, you know, which is okay to a point. Um, but then there's all the other factors of like all the other temptations, you know, like for me, it's not booze anymore, but it's like sweets and cakes and all that kind of stuff. So you've got this lack of sleep, bad diet, um, extreme temperatures sometimes it can be really cold as well um sometimes it's really hot uh and then just the 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 physicality of doing that over decades um you know i wake up most days now for example and my my fingers feel like sausages and it's a struggle to get them going so there's there's like a long-term probably rheumatoid uh you know kind of arthritis issue probably starting to occur now which is you know part of the course i guess um uh there's so many there's so many factors you know whether you're happy within yourself what's going on at home um uh if you're connected emotionally and spiritually to your family to your friends um determines what kind of mindset you're in what kind of um, and that then determines what I might eat or what I might drink and how healthy that is and how much sleep I get. And so this, there's a, there's a whole, and that's different for everybody. Um, so it's a really kind of, it's a really in complicated kind of ingredient. There's a, there's a lot of ingredients that can, that can add up to it being, that can tip the scale one way or the other as to whether, you know, you're in a good space or a bad space in any given day. And, and that reflects, always reflects on the performance. I can hear you. I think one of the really interesting things, sorry, Steve, is that I often ask Mark and Clem and the drummers to fill in like a diary when they're on tour. And when you look back on those, you think, my gosh, there aren't many other professions that have this challenge whereby you're combining physicality, uh, challenges in terms of travel, challenges in terms of what everything else that that brings with it. Plus, you're doing it on the, on a public stage. You know, you're only as good as your last review. 
So it's not as if you can go into hiding. Every time the musicians have to play, they're being judged. They're being evaluated. So me as a lecturer, if I have a bad day at the office, not many people other than those students who have suffered for that hour in my presence will know anything about it. You go and have a bad gig and everybody's beginning to ask questions. And so understanding that the professional musician, the world that they work with within, is just unbelievably challenging. And so for a scientist, it's such a rich uh, world to be a part of, especially when you've got people like Mark who are so willing to open up and describe what that world is like. I can't imagine for a minute you'd give a dud lecture, Marcus. Um, <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's sustaining performance, I'm, I'm no doubt. Um, so I can hear, Mark, that you're thinking quite holistically about this now in terms of sustaining performance within a performance, across performances for a tour, but also across your career and as you age, for example. But So... You, you allude to salty drinks, for example, but what other changes have you made as a consequence of both the research, but some of the discussions and support you've had from Marcus and others? I think um, it's generally, uh, you know, there's a there's a general appreciation of the, what toll this takes on my mind and body. And I think it's kind of a... Um, a double-edged sword because you know music is so therapeutic for people who listen to it and yet it seems to be um quite <laughs> it seems it seems to be quite bad for your health if you're somebody who makes music and tours and plays you know so it's like this real sort of dilemma um i was listening to uh, a lot of music last night you know and just absolutely loving it and I'd gone from feeling quite anxious about my future to feeling quite teary, actually, quite emotional. I was listening to a band called Nightwish, who are, who are um, like an operatic metal band, <laughs> and um, but it was it was really emotional because I was watching gigs that they were doing on YouTube, and I was just thinking, God, how amazing is that? That all of those people come to see us play, and they get so much enjoyment from it. And yet on any given day, I can feel so, so bad or so unhappy or whatever, depending what's going on on, on with my life. And yet it's like this dream job, you know, it's like, so I think that the impact that the Klemberg drum project has had on me really is that um, I've got no excuse now in terms of I, I know what to do to keep myself well. I know what to do to keep myself happy so in terms of physical health i need to get fit before i go on tour there's no point trying to get fit once i'm on tour because that's it just doesn't happen you know you can say oh, oh well, i'll go to the gym every day but it, it doesn't happen you're too tired you're too tired from the show you're too tired from traveling so to get into a good routine of exercise before a tour is really important and also to coupled with that you've got to get your food right as well um emotionally for me personally it, uh, emotion the emotional state is really important um uh i need to make be be 
in a really good place to be able to go on tour and be in close proximity to the same four or five people every day, day in, day out for the next three months. Um, as you know, being with, it takes a lot of um, compromise. You need to be, uh, you, need, you need to sort of, now we're older at least and we're, we're, we're sort of wiser. We need to be um, more sensible with each other and, and how we deal with the day-to-day running of the band. It's, it sounds like it, it's got more boring, but actually it it's just gets better and better because we're getting better and better at looking after ourselves. And if, you know, I've just finished reading Skin's uh, autobiography that she wrote with Lucy O'Brien and, and um, you know, she, she openly admits in that that, Touring's not her favourite place to be because it's just such a difficult environment, you know. Um, and there's only so much we we do probably the amount that we can cope with, which is about three to four months uh, a year. Now we used to do, like Marcus said, we were doing two hundred shows a year um, plus, but we just can't we just can't do that anymore, you know. We don't want to do that anymore because it's too physically demanding. But um, what? What um, the Clement Drum Projects helped me understand is why that's so difficult. It's because it's really bloody hard. <laughs> it's really hard on your body and it's really quite intense emotionally. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really draining. It's a really draining thing to do. And it's very to, it's a very difficult thing to explain because you try and, ex- you know, oh, I'm on tour and I've been on tour for three months or whatever and I'm really sick of it and I want to go home it's like you can't say that to most people most other musicians would would give a limb to be able to to be in that position you know um but after 30 years of it it's it becomes really difficult it 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 becomes something rather that needs to be managed very carefully otherwise it can end pretty badly I think from my position, Steve, with that, it's it's not just about the numbers. It's about the questions that you ask of the person that you're working with. And what I think I've developed with Mark, and Mark can agree or disagree with this, but we just sit down and have conversations that put everything into context. So why is it you're feeling that way? What is it that we know or we can put in place? Why don't we try this? And it is the appetite to want to learn about how to do things better moving forwards. Um, so for me, that as a practitioner or as a scientist, it's not about your capability to collect the numbers. Yes, the numbers are important. It's about the conversation, the softer skills. And I think in our profession, we're not very good at doing that. We're not trained to spend time to develop ways in which you can sit with an artist that's Mark, you know, Mark comes off the stage, I'm taking his blood samples, we're chatting about stuff, he goes and does a meeting, and then we debrief, we have a chat. Because what you don't want to do is replicate poor practice. So if I've learned anything from going from a world that I knew a little bit about, elite sport, into a world I knew nothing about, it's that ability to communicate and to have meaningful communication that ultimately changes behaviour. Because ultimately, that's what we're about, for me, anyway. Yeah, and that's that's incredible, but it's so required at that elite level where you haven't got a reference manual that you can download from a 
uh, a journal search engine. Um, you used to work with heptathletes a lot, still do. You put heptathlon into a journal search engine and it just laughs back at you. There's no, there's no specific uh, textbook on this. And so you're talking about curiosity that leads to, I suppose, first principles problem solving, really, that you're look, willing to say, ah, based on that, then there's a chance, there's a probability that you might benefit from this or in another situation or another industry, whether it's military, whether it's space exploration, they do this and there's some gain that could potentially be applied. And, and Mark, there, you, you referenced this idea about uh, emotionality and how, how you feel fundamentally affecting how you perform, of which a big part is the the connection that you have with your band members. And this, this reminds me of conversations with NASA and astronauts where the, one of the biggest factors that they're, they're working on, not only assessing in terms of selection criteria, um, but also in terms of development, is how are we going to get on for 18 months in a capsule going to Mars? Um, because if if someone has a bit of a bad day, it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> you can't just jettison them out um, and get somebody else in. And that that psychology of the performance. I mean, Marcus, you alluded to that. Uh, what what work's been done in that in that area around whether it's states of flow or the preparatory work that that leads into a performance or a tour. Yeah, so again, for me, the, the last hour of both working at an Olympic Games, I mean, I've been had such a privileged position. You know, I've been behind the scenes uh, an hour before an Olympic boxer goes into the ring and you see the vulnerability. You see that individual at their most vulnerable, probably in situations their own family members and loved ones have never seen them in. It is such a privileged position to be in. And I, know, I see the same with Mark and with Clem and other drummers. That hour before, there's an expectation of delivery. You've got an audience that expects you to li- deliver outside of the own ex- your own expectations of self. And so that period of time, you know, when do you flick the switch to switch on that it's performance-driven? And in both scenarios, you're always going to get well wishes coming in so you can have it as structured as you want, but you will either get team managers come in or other coaches come in if it's sport, or you'll get management come in or fans of the band that want to come in. So managing all that, the similarities, I think is really, really interesting. But it's the switch for me with the likes of Mark and with Clem is when they go into physical practice when they begin to actually occupy that mind space of transference of physical and technical warm-up to taking that onto the kit. And I just love that whole sense of you think you know what's going to happen, but it's a live performance and anything can happen. And you've got to be prepared for that. And so when I sit next to Mark and he's playing and all of a sudden you know, I'm being blown away by the complexity of these four limbs doing these incredible things <laughs> and something on stage slightly then goes wrong and Mark's then immediately switches across and he's talking to the techies off stage while still playing. I'm thinking, how the hell do you do that? And so it just, every experience is unpredictable. You have an idea of where it's going to go, but that for me, if there is a drug, if you want to call it that, that I feed off 
It's the uncertainty of performance. And each performance is going to throw different questions at me that I want to sit down with the likes of Mark and say, wow, how do we explain that? So I, I'm never getting tired of watching Mark play. He might think, oh, bloody hell, you know, he's sitting there again. What's he looking at this time? But hopefully the fact that he keeps on inviting me back, what I'm looking at is trying to understand him as a performer even better that allows him to be better at what he does. Okay, so Mark, can you can you try and unpack that a little bit in terms of what it feels like just before a performance and during a performance, potentially with some some road bumps in the way there? Yeah, so just before, I, I tend to sit in front of a practice pad, or at least I try to sit in front of a practice pad for an hour before I go on stage just to... You know, just to loosen my shoulders, to get my my hands warmed up, and um, uh, and but you know, you, skin has her own dressing room. We uh, the boys have our own dressing room, and that's that's usually a lot more lively than than skins. You know, skin has to have her hour of vocal warm up. That's really important. Um, it's no less important that we have ours, but. The, the guests tend to come in into our room and and there's a lot more interruptions but um i guess it's there's a strange thing that happens between in that hour in that like marcus says you know you go from just sort of doing the physical warm up and um preparation preparatory sort of uh routine that you get into and then we do this, we just have a, we have a little huddle before we go on stage. And, and that's the point, really. I think I've learned that that's the point where the focus kicks in because there's any number of interruptions can happen before that, you know, whether I'm warming up or not, you know, record company, management, friends, family. Um, they all want to come in and say hello and um, have a little bit of time in, you know, backstage and be, you know, um, uh, and be involved in that in that way, but I think once we've had the huddle and we've and we've had a little bit of a, a pep talk, because some gigs are, you know, are like especially in festivals, for example, you kind of go, well, it's it's freezing cold, it's it's raining, um, you know, the crowd's here for the headliners, you know, we're here to steal as many of those fans as you can. Let's just get out there and 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 do do a job sometimes it is as clinical as that it's it's a job but when it's your own crowd then my focus becomes um so so in the previous sorry at the festival thing it's it's more of a performance there's more of a performance element because you want to be more impressive and be more flamboyant and you want to gain as many fans as you can when it's when you're preaching to the converted i.e you're going out on stage in front of a load of a room full of people that have bought tickets to see us uh, that's you know you kind of get into a position where you're just being yourself that you don't need to perform as much but there is a certain expectation of well this is what I've done for the last 30 years so I need to I need to at least reach that level and some some nights you surpass it and some nights you only just just reach it but um there's a pressure on me I feel to be consistent 
And th- there's a, a level of consistency that I'm happy with. And there's a level that, that just really ups. If I dip below that, you know, make too many mistakes, then I need to look at what's, you know, I need to look at that and go, okay, what, what was different? What was going on? And very often, you know, like I say, there's lots going on. There's stuff going on at home or there the wasn't enough sleep or the food has been terrible. You know, all the, all of these factors kick in, but, um, for me, the the best feeling is when you come off stage, you haven't made any mistakes, and you and I've done the job that I've gone out there to do, which is perform at my peak and um, be that that solid foundation for the rest of the band to sit on. Um, so I guess it it feels really. Um, <laughs> It's it's a thin line between feeling incredibly uh, incredible and kind of a bit a bit miffed that you haven't done the, the as good a job as you know that you're capable of. So, but I'm sure there's parallels between that and you know sports people as well. You know, in the sense that it's a really thin line between jumping um, an extra five centimeters and uh, or not. You know, or or running that extra tenth of a second faster or or not, you know, um, in that sense. So it sounds like you've got different types of focuses, foci, whatever the right <laughs> term is there, um, based on, on the type of crowd. Well, that's, that's interesting that you've got that flex yeah. flexibility. Um, but also you've, the parallels I'm picking up there is that there's a sense of rather than it being, overjoyed and um it's the sense of relief i did what i needed to do um which are a lot of performers because they have such high expectations that they're meeting those expectations as opposed to exceeding them and it sounds like you have a strategy there for coping with when it doesn't go well when you go into a bit of analysis which hopefully that can then allow that debrief whether it's facilitated through marcus or not to to get you at a place to working out what you might need to do or avoid doing next time. Yeah, I mean I think I think sometimes meeting your own expectations is has to be enough because the situation the situation's just, you know, um especially with tiredness, that's the one thing that affects me more than anything, I think. Is like I can cope with bad food, I can cope with um, you know, the travel most of the, most of the time, it's the lack of sleep that gets me. Um, uh, having said that I used to not sleep. I used to play hungover and, or semi drunk and, you know, thought I was doing an amazing job and didn't feel any pressure, but now I'm, (laughs) now I'm, I'm arguably doing a much better job and there's more pressure. Um, so if, some, if something's going really wrong, then we'll look at it and we'll say, you know, what's what's happened there? Um, what went wrong? But um, sometimes that, but that's a show where you're not in the flow. You know, there's sometimes some shows you're just completely in the flow and everything's going right. And I think the most recent example of that was probably we were in Poland doing a festival called Poland Rock, which is um, partly a, a, a gift to the nation's health workers. Um, and there's 800,000 people to a million people turn up at this thing every year. And it's it's the most, it's the biggest crowd I've ever played to. But it was, 
the festival's 25th anniversary, it was the band's 25th anniversary, and it was Skin's birthday all on the same day. So we were, we were all in a fantastic mood and we were all really up for this, this show, you know, and um, it was just, it f- just flowed from start to finish. And you knew everybody was with us. Uh, and and also we uh, we didn't have to try and win anyone over. Everyone was with us just, for, you know, from the very beginning. So um, I'll send you a link to the festival if you'd be interested in watching it because it's all, it's all on YouTube. Um, but... Uh, yeah it's just just fabulous that's the best it gets you know when you're just in flow state and you're not thinking about anything and you can t- i can turn around to my you know microphone might move might be get knocked from the one of the toms or whatever and you turn around and he's my tech's not there because he's already around fixing it and and other times you know you have to scream at him and not scream at him but but try and verbally say look you know my microphone's out of place can you go and fix it and um that that would be just meeting expectations but exceeding them is when definitely when you're just flowing and everything's happening and it's just wonderful you know um but i guess those things coincide with every or with the preparation being good as well with the preparation being not perfect nothing ever is ever perfect but it's as good as it can be I think what's really interesting for me, Steve, if I can jump in there, is I've said both to Clem and to Mark, if the lights went out and it was pitch black, could you still play the song? I say, yeah. And so there is this automated side. But then I say to them, but do you play the same song exactly, note for note, exactly the same? I say, no, we never play the same twice. There has to be minimal variations in it for our enjoyment. And I thought that that was intriguing, the fact that you can have an automated response that regardless of what's going on around you, for the audience's perspective, you'll hear the song. But for the performer's perspective, there's creativity that is always embedded and laid over the top of that. And for me, that's why you go to live performances. If you just want to record and play the record, go on to Spotify. If you want the nuances, if you're into what's really happening, if you're looking at why Mark is such a world-leading exponent of what he does, go and watch him play. You don't have to be an elite drummer uh, yourself to understand that. You just see it. You hear it. You feel it. I mean, when he's hitting the bass, that is like almost being shot. It just is like a, a sound barrier that's going out across. Imagine walking out to your next conference, Steve, or and you've got 800,000 people there or a million watching you do it. I'd be quite happy That's with the bank balance, but outside cope, I'd find a coping strategy. It's for my company, mate. <laughs> but it, it is that sense for me of, you know, just this wonderment of what they do. And Mark, are there any specific songs that almost within the concert that, that you go, all right, okay, I've got to be up for this one, or that this one's particularly demanding, whether that hits the, the maximum heart rates. or uh, and, and do you have a, a say in when that occurs during the set? No. So the, <laughs> the, the last tour, I think the first five songs were real, really brutal, you know, so it was, um, they were just real... Uh, I can't remember what they were. It started off with Charlie Big Potato, which is uh, which is quite physical. Pardon? 
And then intellectualize, my, sorry, my wife's, because um, <laughs> my wife tours with us. So she's over there listening and... Fantastic. Uh, you're, getting, you're getting fed by I'm the tech. I'm getting fed, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but it was, it's a really physical beginning to the show. And, and but equally, um, fortunately for me, Skin isn't um, a singer who just stands at a microphone and still and doesn't move. She's running all over the place, which is great for me because it means that she's also been physical. So we're quite in sync fitness wise because we have to be, um, because by the time I'm ready for a rest, you know, she's also ready for a rest. So the set list always, it's never too brutal because, you know, she needs a rest vocally, uh, physically as, as much as I do. So we, um, it was, I think five, Five pretty intense physical songs, and then you know a more mellow one um, on the last tour. But then towards the end of the set, it ramps up again. So you you know you sort of done an hour and a half, and then you come back on. You got to do another half hour of like really fast stuff, like skankheads and tear the place up, and all this sort of stuff, which are just kind of brutal physically because because visually it's you know arms all over the place and. They're heavy songs, so you know I need to be smacking the kit like, like I like I normally do, and because you can't just go out and go, oh, I'm tired tonight. I'll just t- I'll just tap this one, you know. It's got to be, you know, arms flailing and doing what I do. You know, that's that's the rod that I made for my own back. So, um, <laughs> I, looking back and at your your younger self with that anger, that set of precedents you've got to maintain. <laughs> absolutely, and and to be honest, I I. I look at, at me playing now and compare it to when I was young and it and it is markedly reduced in terms of physical effort. I mean I'll send I'll send you a clip Marcus of some earlier stuff and it's I just don't know how I I look at it and I go I don't know how I used to play like that. I mean I must have been so angry. <laughs> I must have been so you know, I don't know. I don't know what we're, well, we sort of discussed uh, uh, briefly what we, what might have been driving it, but um, I just can't physically do that anymore. And actually what, what I've discovered over the years is it's not appropriate to do that for the whole show. You know, it's like I used to smash my way through hedonism and it's just not, which is a mellow song for anyone who's listening who doesn't, who, who doesn't know it. it. It's kind of a mellow song compared to, a lot of the heavier stuff and um i just you know i learned that the the physical aggressive drumming has its place and actually it's more effective when you use it sparingly so um that's my excuse and i'm sticking to it <laughs> yeah that's the, no you've got some light and shade that gives that contrast exactly. so that yeah that yeah okay that's interesting yeah. um okay so marcus and just give us a bit of a glimpse as to what you think the applications or the um, where's this like kind of going? I mean, I, I'm wondering whether you're going to be putting ice vests on people's, maybe some carbohydrate gels and beetroot juice, maybe some <laughs> Nike vapor flies on the foot for some efficiency. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm making it up now, but where, where's this going now, Marcus? As crazy as that seems, probably several of those will be tried <laughs> <laughs> if they haven't been done already. Um I just think it's, you know, performance is an incredibly complex thing that we're only really scratching the surface of understanding. 
I think it's that willingness to... I mean, I think the thing for me is so far we've really spoken about the physicality, the demands of touring, where science all fits in. Another area of development for me is using drumming as an intervention across different groups with different challenges like brain disorders or brains that are not working effectively because in order to learn a new skill, the stimulus to this is I read a paper and I've got colleagues, uh, Professor Steve Williams up at King's in London, Professor Steve Draper at Hartbury and Dr. Ruth Lowry at Essex and the importance of collaboration is key. But we read a paper to do with how you learn to juggle, the simple task of how you juggle. So basically people had their brain scanned before they learned to juggle and the brain scanned after. And they found that clearly the brain has to adapt. And so we took that back as a group and said, well, clearly nothing really is as complicated in terms of four limbs working either collectively or independently than drumming. And so we began to say, well, how do you learn to drum? What happens in your brain that allows you to drum? And so we went to uh, the Waterloo Foundation, which is a charity, and said to them, will you fund us some research for us to understand more about how the brain changes? Going back to the conversations I think we had previously where therapists were saying to us, we do drumming with autistic kids. It works, but we don't know why it works. And so that really set off a whole avenue of research looking at how drumming affects connectivity within the brain. And Mark's been involved in doing some stuff. We did the pre-Olympic Games conference in Glasgow in 2012. Uh, we went and did the British Cardiovascular Annual Conference in 2014. Um, we're doing some stuff. Mark's um, playing a key role in an animated video about these research findings. But what we've done is we've taken drumming as an activity and used it as to manipulate it in terms of how we can change how the brain functions. And we've produced some really interesting stuff that we're publishing at the moment about why people working in the area of autism are very interested in, in using drumming as an intervention. So the extension of Mark of saying, I break lots of symbols, to now Mark being involved with knowledge exchange about how drumming may be good for as a physical activity for certain groups that is non-medication it's physical activity and you'll enjoy doing playing a cool instrument for us is that's where the collective group come together it's about rallying behind you know as scientists we should be challenged to be doing different things not just more of the same and so you know my involvement collaboration is key there's no good me sitting around a table with 11 other people that think the same way that I do. You have to be challenged in that environment. And Professor Tudor Hale, who was my mentor at Chichester, he always used to say to me, surround yourself by people who are more intelligent than you. And there's a lot to, to say about that because I think, one, you have to admit your own vulnerability, but it welcomes other people into the conversation. And so when I sit down with Mark, I'm not a threat to Mark because I also play in a band. I sit down with Mark because he's got experiences that I want him to share with me. And I think that's the same with the scientific community. People talk about ivory towers. The Clenberg Drumming Project is all about knocking those towers down. It's about people coming out of those environments. Let's chuck ourselves into something we know nothing about. And that gives everybody uh, a comfortable place at the table that you have to be challenged in, but it's done in a way that is ultimately trying to understand more about application of knowledge.
and that's really important. And Mark's played such a key role in us doing a lot of public engagement events where people can understand the complexities of drumming and the value of drumming. Mm. Well, I hear, hear to all of that. And the idea of applying knowledge to uh, an end user such as you, Mark, that, that you can benefit from, from that knowledge, um, but also then stretching that application to a broader health outcome that can benefit somebody who doesn't have the privilege of being able to download Spotify, doesn't have the money to, to necessarily go to a concert, for example. Um, and what about for you, for you Mark? What, you mentioned that you're, you're doing your master's. We're finishing that up now. What are the things that you're looking to explore? Well, funnily enough, um, be, as a direct result of the Clem Burke project and the, the research I've done with Marcus, I've just been asked if I would train to be the special educational uh, needs and disabilities uh, um, person down at Water Bear University. So um, that's going to take a little bit more study. I'm not sure whether um, I'm considering it for sure. Uh, and certainly in, in the current climate of not being in a, in a band that, well, in, it being in an industry that's not working and not, not, and being almost forgotten about, I, I need to, need to consider it carefully. Um, but I think, you know, and, and Marcus was talking about mentors and surround yourself with more intelligent people. And that's been instrumental in, um, in helping me develop a part of my life that I thought was absolutely defunct, you know, and, and I hadn't been to school for 35 years and I'd been carrying a weight of not, you know, not good enough, not intelligent enough, not good enough, basically it would cover it. And, um, and I just thought I've got a, I've really got to kind of get over this and, and start to, um, I can't carry this anymore. So, uh, a series of situations happened and I ended up um, starting to study for this master's at, at Water Bay University in, in Brighton. And um, it's it's leading on to all sorts of things. You know, the, the short version is that I know whatever I turn my attention to within reason, I can I can kind of pretty much get a handle on and and um, and crack on with it. And. I can reach out to people for help if if I need to. Um, so I'm not sure what the future holds in terms of music, but there's certainly um, uh, a future. There's always a there's always a future there. If if I choose to to take it, you know, then there's always going to be opportunities that open up. And certainly, I'm really keen to carry on doing the research with the drums and the drumming. Um, the the Klemberg drumming project you know is is discovering and I think seeing those kids that were I went to give and uh, give the awards to these kids that um at uh, what was it called Marcus the yeah the, at the milestone, milestone school, school that's it and um just as a, a, a as a little bit of a you know congratulations and and it was so unbelievable because these kids that had been fairly um, enabled to to interact at the start of their drumming lessons. Were now sort of playing, not you know, not only playing but looking around and, and interacting. And um, for for the for the instrument of drums to be the result of that, and and obviously a really good teacher, um, it's just it just amazes me. And I think there's so much more to be 
uncovered in in that arena um, and in in those discipline with the discipline of drums and with the challenges of autism and ADHD and all these kinds of things. I, th- I think that there's so much more to come and I'm really looking forward to being more involved and, and doing more, um, you know, more research. I mean, there's a great bit of video that we captured, Steve, where there's um, one of the, the pupils, aged probably about 12, is sitting at an electronic kit and Mark's sitting at an electronic kit and they begin to talk to each other through playing the drums so Mark would do something and the kid would respond. And this kept going and going until at the end, there was just these two beaming smiles, no verbal communication, but communication through movement and sound. And it was just another example of, you know, that we can, have, we can have an effect in terms of what we're doing, trying to do across many, many platforms, but communication is, is really one, you know, and, our work in autism is only at the very, very beginning, but we've demonstrated that you can div- you can deliver drumming within a school environment and not disrupt the curriculum. You can offer offer those kids uh, an experience whereby it gives them currency within that school. So, one of the first studies that we did, we looked at five and six year olds in a primary school. And we looked at kids who'd got uh, additional educational needs. And to a degree, they were the ones that were marginalised in that school environment. Once they started to do the drumming, every uh, lots of the other kids wanted to talk to them about the experience. So we mapped the friendship groups and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And that was really uh, almost a decade ago we did that was part of the, the reason that we kept on going with drumming and with autism. What is it? What attraction? What is the inequalities that it possesses? Um, but then what we didn't expect to capture was parents coming back in the evening and saying, oh, this is the first time now that my child is able to brush all of their teeth because they've got the dexterity in the fingers and the strength in their wrist, which came from drumming. Uh, or homework used to be really problematic my child would come home from school and we would sit down to do the homework when within five minutes you know we would be falling out and that was basically again about not having the strength to hold the pen for extended period of times so once they'd done the drumming and they'd built those hand strength up that homework was no longer a problem now we didn't set out that wasn't our research question but because we had an open mind to try and something different those are the golden nuggets that that's behavioural change. And so it, it really is for me, you know, I, similar to you, you lived in a world that I was that was brutal about medals. And if we look at what's happening to certain governing bodies uh, of sport at the minute, that is coming back to ask questions about that approach. So I've gone from Olympic medals to looking at quality of life issues and I, it's an incredible, both are ex- incredibly rewarding um, uh, environments to be in. But the work that we're doing with Mark and me watching Mark communicate with this individual through the kit, I just thought that's awesome. That's just awesome. Can you imagine what came from basically you seeing a single picture on a on a seven inch single, Marcus? This is it, and this is an amazing journey that's that's gone on of that of that single moment of of seeing that a flashbulb moment to thinking about all of the 
branches on the tree that this could apply to? It's it's quite a journey you've been on. Yeah, I mean, people say to me, I'm very lucky. Um, and I would agree with that. But I would say to everybody that my origins are no different in terms of how I got started than anybody else. I got introduced to music and I fell in love with a particular band. Um, off the back of that, then, you know, you meet incredible people. And it's about having that open mind to go and have conversations with people. And, um, you know, I look to the likes of yourself. I look at Greg White. I look at Steve Williams. You know, there are people that inspire me to challenge myself to be better at what I do. And sometimes I don't really know what I do other than I have a passion for science and a passion for understanding. And when you marry that with the likes of Mark, who are these world-class performers who want to understand more about what it is that they do, or you're able to take drumming as an example, as an intervention, and go and talk to neuroscientists, talk to different people about the application. Yeah, people say I'm lucky, but then you have to make good use of that luck. And for me, I think by trying to empower others to come along with you on that journey um, is, is a, 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 you know, I've loved that experience and, and we'll continue to do that. It's only through communication, chatting to people about different ideas that things move forward. And, you know, hopefully what Mark's recognised over doing his MA, that he has got a voice, he has got things that are important to say. And what we want the drumming project to do is to give him that platform to share the stage with us, not just as the novelty act that will turn up and perform, Mark has got far much more to say than just being the drummer. Amazing. What an interesting and truly groundbreaking project with so many applications and, and deep implications for understanding. So thank you so much to you both. And, and Mark, thank you for sharing that, that story of your, your career of, of kind of getting curious about how you're coping <laughs> that then grew to thriving that then grew to kind of backing yourself and it's been amazing to, to chat to you both about this my pleasure absolutely i think uh, i just wrote there um while marcus was talking you know i started in music for, for for one reason which was i needed to escape um from life really and but you know wherever i went there i was so in, ultimately i had to deal with that and um i'm now in music for other reasons entirely which is that the benefit of myself and and others you know it's a really amazing instrument and and um is proving to be a force for good so um you know thanks for helping us spread that message oh amazing thank you both pleasure you're welcome <laughs> thank you steve thanks steve You can connect with Marcus on Twitter at MarcusSmith78 and Mark on at MarkSkunkAndNancy with no E on the end. Do take a look at ClemBurkDrummingProject.org. Have a look at the show notes for all the links. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Do check out our LinkedIn and Instagram pages, Supporting Champions. Don't forget to benefit from the exclusive discount for the handcrafted award-winning Junius Juice Range using the discount code CHAMPIONS10 to get 10% off your first order. Click on the link in the show notes or visit wearejunius.com forward slash shop to take a look at the full range where you can purchase a box of juices tailored to your health goals. 
Now, if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help support you go to the next level in your work, life or in sport, then have a look at supportingchampion.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring or just simply drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk and you can sign up for a free consultation there to explore which package is right for you. Now, as promised, just sit back and listen to the outstanding performance of Mark Richardson performing his art form. This is the full isolated drumming performance from Skunk Anansi's Tear the Place Up. (laughs) 